I'd like to turn with you to the passage that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. It's, uh, it's um, Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at the church, um, not as a static structure, but as a living animal, so to speak. You know, living animal. We want to see, we want to, if you want to know how a cat is, you don't look at a stuffed cat. You know, you actually have to see it move. You have to see its habitat. You see how it eats and it does its thing, the cat things. And so we, our approach to studying about the church and is, has to do with the fact that the church is a moving thing. It's timely. It's not just a timeless structure, but it is timely. That means in time it is moving and the Holy Spirit is moving. What we want to know is to follow the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is moving the church. And so Acts is really good because Acts doesn't give that much commentary, but it just shows what was happening, what took place. It's almost as if church was like a verb rather than just a noun. The church was moving and you, and you, could, you get to observe it as it moved. So let's have a look at this. Peter had just shared, uh, the, spoken his word and and many people had come to the Lord and given their lives to the Lord. And as a result of Peter's exhortation that they uh, um, receive the Holy Spirit, as well as save themselves from this corrupt generation, the church responded in this particular way. Um, you see this in Acts chapter 2. We'll read this from verse... Um, uh, 39, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation or this corrupt generation. So these two things, right? We are looking at that. The church as a response to the Holy Spirit, the, li the life of God, the supernatural life of God, that is given to us and to our children. And secondly, Responding in, in, in a more negative way, and that is to save ourselves from the um, corrupt generation. And so, as a response to that, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There were four things that were important to the church in their response to these realities, the reality of the Holy Spirit and the reality of our own corruption. That is, that they, rest, they devoted themselves continually, right? Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four, four things, the apostles' doctrine or the doctor, apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the four things that they would always have, right? These are the four basic things of church that were the more or less the pillars that were the response to what was going on in the world. Verse 43. <coughs> Verse 43. Kim, I think I've got your thing. Everyone <coughs> kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So, he's, thanks. So, you see that this is something that's really happening. People were feeling a sense of awe, awe was coming upon them. And miracles were taking place. So it is the church 
It's happening, continual, present continuous, continuous tense in, 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 in that sense, yeah? Even though it was in the past, of course. There was this thing that's happening. The cat is moving. Catch it. Watch it. And what was happening is that these people were responding, not in a static way, but as they were responding, things were happening. The church is a happening in some ways. It's a continuously happening thing. Uh, and so what they, they began to do is that they were together. Signs and wonders were taking place, verse 44. And all those who had believed were together, had all things in common. They were together. They were all thing, had all things in, in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So this, you see, is what was taking place to this infant, uh, infant church. Okay, um, And today, I'd like us to continue to look at what we were looking at last week. In verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. We were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. We talked a little bit about the apostles' doctrine. I'd like to t t take these two, uh, two phrases, the apostles' doctrine and continually devoting themselves, because they these two things are really important. It was what they were devoting themselves to, but there was a certain way in which they were devoting themselves. The devotion was a way in which they were approaching the Apostles' Doctrine. I'd like to talk about the Apostles' Doctrine first. Uh, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 6, uh, we were looking at that last week. But uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we welcome your presence. We find that we talk about you a lot, Lord. And we want to know you, know things about you. But we ask you that you would move among us. And that we will be able to observe your moving. And that we will also be able to respond in real time to that which you are doing. And so we ask you that this session that we have, this hour or so, will not be one man talking about God or church, but you will be moving and we will be able to feel it. So move in us today. That, that which we are studying will be that which we experience firsthand. We welcome you, Lord. I'd like us to just lift up our hands if you feel comfortable do, to do that. Being just aware of the Holy Spirit's presence. You move all the structures of church aside. What we have essentially is the Holy Spirit who is alive and working and in our midst. I would take a step further together with you to just pray privately and tell God what you need. We 
we don't have to relate to the teaching as much as to God. So would you be willing to, in this time, address God himself? Tell him what you need. Open your heart to him, as I will myself. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll read uh, Romans chapter 6. Uh, Romans chapter 6 is a good summation of the apostles' teaching. And, and this constituted the whole New Testament core. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And of course we saw, no, of course not. What are you thinking, Paul is saying? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the death, from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we might no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been dead, raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you obey its lust, but do not, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 15, What then shall we sin because we are no, not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Last week, we looked at verse 1. What shall we say then? If shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? Remember we talked about that? And we said, Paul is saying, what are you thinking? If you were a person who had the new life, the person of the second Adam, you wouldn't even be thinking that. You would not be able to ask such a question because the question that was being asked is this. Look, God's grace abounded to us to now sin. So let, why don't we sin more so that grace may abound more? And Paul is saying, you don't know who he's talking. The, Adam, the, the first Adam in, is talking. If you are truly having the new life, you could not talk that way. You will have a completely different heart. Your heart will not think that way. Now, in verse 15, Paul gives you another example. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Then he says, may it never be. So the second question for those people who have not had that change of heart, change of, of life, they ask this question. Well, because of the fact that all our sins are, are forgiven for us, then we should not worry. We can continue to sin. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Does that mean that now we don't have to worry about the Old Testament law, we are under grace? We can just sin freely. Yeah, or we can sin boldly. And Paul says, 
you don't know what you're talking. Who are you? Who is this person talking? The person who's talking is a person who has not been redeemed yet, who hasn't got a new, a new life. And what the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching narrows down to is the fact that we, as the first Adam, there are two, two humanities, that first Adam, that has not been redeemed yet. It is subject to human fragility. It is subject to disease. It is subject to psychological disease. It's subject to sin. It is subject to the works of the devil. It's also called the body of sin. Sometimes we call it the old man. The, the, the Old Testament did not have the resources to deal with the fact that we in our humanity are not only fragile, but we are diseased and evil. We have a body of sin and could not help ourselves living in sin. Can't help it. Right? This is what we call the first Adam. When Christ came, He came not to repair the first Adam. He did not come to heal up the first Adam. He did not come to heal your past or my past. Your past is completely hopeless. Does that make sense? Your past cannot be improved. No matter how much you improve, your past is a past. Your past will keep on asking questions like, well, if sin abounds, well, why, why, grace abounds, then we can sin more. You need a different heart. What Paul is saying is, Paul is saying, what's, what's, what Christ came to do is not to patch up your old or to try to heal that, whole, that, that, that old person. No amount of, of, uh, of, of, of psychological or pastoral health can do that. The radical thing about the New Testament, about the Apostles' Doctrine, was this, that no amount of healing therapy could actually heal us. We cannot fix it. It's completely gone. The only way in which the New Testament deals with our past and our brokenness is not to patch it, but to kill it. And what Paul is saying is this, when Christ came, He dealt a death blow upon you and me. Its mastery over you, its nature of sin, could not be conquered. In fact, you were a slave of the old Adam, the first Adam. The first Adam, which we so identify with, the first Adam that all our seminars and our talks and our, and our Christian ministry is fixated at, right, is hopeless. It's completely hopeless. The New Testament has no tolerance for that. Because if you continue to live in the old Adam, you will continually be frustrated with your Christian life because you can't overcome sin. It's your master. You're a slave to it. And if you try to kill it yourself, you can't. Because it is master over you. The radical thing about the New Testament teaching, the teach, apostles' doctrine, is the fact that Christ did not come to patch up your old life. He came to kill it and to give you a new life. So what he's saying, okay, let's, let's have a look at this. Okay, It says, verse 3, all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. He took us with him into his death. 
he took the first Adam, its mastery over you, it's you know, that 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 old nature, he took it to his death. It's he plunged to death and he took it with you. You know how in the movies, how somebody have you seen that, you know? A person is they're fighting on the edge and all that, and then suddenly the bad guy grabs hold of him and plunges and commits suicide, and the good guy also goes and plunges plunges to his death. You you've seen that before, right? Yes? It's all the time. It happens all the time. Well, what Christ did was something like that, but in a good way. What he did was that he took your old first Adam nature. Only a God can do that. He, he could do it in an infinite way, in, an, in a mysterious way. I don't even fully understand that. Nobody fully understands that. We are just using analogies here. He took it and he died. He, he took it to death and he crucified it. Okay? So... All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into death. If we say, I have no life except the life that Christ gives, I give my life to Him. I also follow Him to, into death, into baptism, which means death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness as life. So that when Christ rose from the dead, your old person was left dead. When He rose to the dead, he reversed what we see in the movies. It's almost as if the hero rises up from the bottom of the, of the canyon and then jumps onto the ledge and he says, I'm alive. And so are you. He resurrected you to a new life so that your life is not the same as what it was before. Your, nutri- new, your nature is not the same anymore. But there is such a thing as a body of sin. There is this body that we have that is immediate to us. Our soul is still broken. True? It's not as if I can say, well, I've got a new nature and I, had, I don't have any temptation. I'm not subject to these things. No, Paul talks about the body of sin. The body of sin is like, we have this. What's immediate to us is sin. Temptation. Fragility. And so let's have a look at what, 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 what Paul does because it's not just a matter of saying, I am a new person in Christ, so I'm a new person in Christ and, and repeating that mantra. It is something that is more complex than that. It's deeper than that. Okay, let's have a look at that. So he says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, verse 4, second part, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. What he's saying is that there is a new life in you. You may not feel it. You may, it may not feel the immediacy of it. You may not feel it in your emotions. You may not feel it in your body. In fact, everything looks the same. But there is newness of life that you can walk in. You may say, well, I don't see the newness of life. I don't feel it. I feel the same. Look at me. I'm just the same, you know. Here, here's what verse 5 says. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. That means, if Christ really dragged you down to death and took upon Himself your deathly body, all your first Adam, just as He rose from the dead, you, He also caused you to rise with them the dead with him in the new life. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Isn't that great? We don't have to, to crucify ourselves. The Bible never says crucify yourself. 
Isn't that amazing? He says, you have been crucified. That you could not do for yourself. God did that for you. Amen? What does that mean? It means that the power of that old self, the power of that disease, the power of that addiction, the power of that, 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 that disease and sinfulness, the power of that selfishness was broken. It's still there, but it's broken. Its power is broken. It's almost as if it's dead. Just like when you see a, a, a dead person, is it there? Yes. But is it able to do anything? No. It has, its power has been broken. Its power has bro- been broken. I remember uh, when Mussolini uh, was, the, was, was killed and he was executed, the, Italian, the new Italian government called people to really look closely at Mussolini because he was so powerful in their lives, so powerful in that nation that they were so afraid of him psychologically, they were psychologically scarred, they were psychologically tra- traumatized by him. And, and the government understood that they had to look at him. They had to look at him carefully. Do you remember when Joshua this, uh, defeated the kings, those kings, those five kings? He said, now put your foot on it. You have to see it. So the old person is still there. This old person, the Adamic nature, the first Adam is still there. But you're going to know this, that in spite of the fact that it is there, it has no more power over you. To say that the, of the first Adam is dead does not mean that, that the first Adam does not exist. The temptation is there. You will go out of this, 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 this building and you will immediately feel the impact, the immediacy of the first Adam. But he is not powerful in you anymore. His power has been broken. The sting has been taken out. The sting of death is taken out. So knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. See this body of sin that causes us to sin all the time? That it will be done away with. We could not do away with him. We couldn't say, okay, I'm not going to look at you anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. That's not going to work. Because he's right inside. He says, knowing this, that my old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. You can only be freed from sin if you died, if that body of sin died. That body of insecurity died. That body of hang-ups died. That's the only way you can be free from it. You cannot be, you cannot be Lived alongside, it cannot be uh, mollycoddled, it cannot be put in a prison, it cannot be isolated, it cannot because it's it's marbleized, it's just like fog, it just goes all over the place. It's no no way you can exp- destroy it except Christ by His cross. And so what He's saying is this: those who have died are freed from sin, so you are no longer under any bondage even though sin is there. The difference is that its gravitational power has been broken. Its power is broken. You get, the, you get to choose. You get to choose. It doesn't choose whether it wants to oppress you or not. It doesn't dictate, dictate that you are a product of your culture, or your history, or your um, heredity, 
or your parent, parent, parents, you are no longer subject to that. You get to choose. You can choose evil too. You get to choose. You can be healed and then go back to the evil that you want. Because it doesn't, not, it's not non-existent anymore. It's there. And you can choose. There's a way in which the Old Testament saints couldn't because they were still living in the old first Adam. Does that make sense? The radical thing about this New Testament teaching is that it's not that Christ has given us resources to deal with the old Adam. He's not. That's not the radical thing. The radical thing is not that the Christ Christian way is better than the Buddhist way or the Muslim way or the other, the New Age way or the, or the, or the Baha'i way. It's not. That's not the radical thing. The radical thing is this. We became new people. God put His new life in you and me. We call it the Zoe life. Amen? It causes us to have as close to us, even closer to us, than the death, the deathly fragility that we have. The life of Christ. That's more than genius. That's truth. Okay? For the death, verse 10... So, so, sorry, verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Death is there, but he's not your master. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Wow, isn't that amazing? So from, the, from now, the life that I live, I don't live to that. I don't live to pornography. I don't live to drugs. I do not live to any person. I do not live to my wife. I do not live to, to my children. I do not live to the success that I hope for. I do not live to my dreams. I live to God. Does that make sense? Unto God, orientated toward God, for the sake of God. Oh, I tell you something. When that happens, you see a whole different set of feelings coming to you. Whole different set of thoughts. Whole different set of dreams coming to you. And the Christian church must get away from feeding old dreams. You gotta get away from feeding the old man, the old Adam. Because so much of what we hear in the Christian world is about how we can improve ourselves. The New Testament says, no, that has completely no, no, no power anymore. The only way in which the old self can be, can be, can be dealt, dealt with is by it being destroyed. And that he did for you on, on Calvary. Do you realize that when he died, he gave you death? Because you couldn't kill yourself. You couldn't kill your, your, your temptations. You couldn't kill your tendencies towards evil, right? You couldn't kill your fears. You couldn't kill them. Some people who are of stronger uh, personality and character can have something, but you cannot kill it. Therefore, what's really important is this. The church, the early church were radical. They were almost the enemy of everybody else because they refused to have allegiances to any nationality, any race, or any history. They didn't have absolute allegiance to that. They had reality. They had cognizance to that. 
they are they recognize it, but they didn't have allegiance to it. They refused to let their 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 identity be identified with these particularities. And therefore, because of that, a person who was hardly educated could stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody like Paul who was highly educated and know that both can have the revelation of God. Isn't that amazing? So that's really important. That's the apostles' doctrine. They dedicated themselves or devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' doctrine. I want to... You, you excuse me if I belabor the point. I, you know, I know we don't flog dead horses, but can I flog it one more time? This is the difference. Uh, let's have a look at the. Let's have a look at some pictures. Um, I got this from the um, Voice of the Martyrs. His name is Ibrahim. Ibrahim was a policeman in the seventies, a Muslim, Somali, living in Kenya. There's a significant Somali population in Kenya. He went to a rally as a policeman guarding these people, and he heard the preacher speaking about what he thought was the Qur'an. But actually, he was talking from the Bible. And the more he listened to it, the more agitated he got. Cut a long story short, he became a Christian. And he realized that the moment he became a Christian, he became a different person. Ibrahim got baptized in spite of the fact that his village and his people persecuted him terribly. Terribly. They actually at first offered him 400 cows, you know. Do you know 400 cows? How much it is? Back home in Malaysia, among, among the, 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 the Muruts and the other Aboriginal uh, uh, tribes, a marriage dowry comes to one cow. One cow. He was offered 400 cows, so he must have been somebody. And they refused to, he refused to become a Christian. He said something like this. I've never seen anyone buy, successfully buy salvation. They persecuted him. They separated him from his wife. He became a Christian. He got baptized. On the day of his baptism, they had to call um, guards and policemen to just protect the area because riots were going to happen. He had every reason to not go through with it. He became a Christian and you can see the new man, you see. The new man changed him. It could resist not only temptation but severe persecution. He was separated from his wife for some years. And then he became a missionary. He became a church planter. And he decided that he was going to go to Somalia. You know about Somalia, right? And what he would do is that he would take camels. Let's have a look at the next picture. This is a camel. Inside it, there are milk cartons. And he put New Testament scriptures in these new, new, new cartons. And every time he would go, he would go six times a year. And there were times in which he was caught, he was put in prison. Six times a year, he would put, he would get 40 Bibles in these milk cartons and cross the border into Somalia. One time, 
Actually, several times he says, stones were thrown at him. Because after a while, everybody knew who he was. And because his cover had been blown, he was a target. But he refused to stop. Where does that come from? That was not in in the first Adam. Does that make sense? You allow me to flog dead horses one more time, okay? Where do you get that? That's a new life, newness of life. It's a whole different, qualitatively different life. It's a different animal completely. It's like, it's a different species of life. The scripture calls it the Zoe kind of life, the supernatural kind of life. It is not the old life trying to repair itself so that it looks Christian. It's not the, the, the old life trying to, trying to, trying to keep Shaping and shaping and shaping and talking itself into new things. It's not that. It is a completely different thing. It's a different animal completely. I just want to emphasize the complete, this utter, infinite distinction between the new life, the second Adam and the first Adam. That is what the New Testament gives. The reason why the church is so powerless is because... Most ministers are ministering to try to help the old Adam, the first Adam. And so pastors are now characterized under the helper, helping professions as well. To help our fragility. I got to tell you, we have fragility in every, in every race. We have fragility on every side. We are more than fragile. Fragile is a is a, is, a, is, is, is a euphemism. We are messed up. We are so broken. We are so broken on every color, every race, every educational social system. We are, we are fundamentally f- broken. We're worse than fragile. And the, and the Bible does not give much hope for this fragility to be dealt with or to be cured. There's no hope on that. We need a new life. Ibrahim was put in prison several times. And there was one per- per- perpetrator who found out that he was a Christian bringing Bibles in. And he got him stoned. Fortunately, Ibrahim was able to escape. And when his, the perpetrator found out his story. He was so touched by Ibrahim. I don't know where Ibrahim got the love to respond in love to him. He became a Christian. The next picture is these guys who are pastors of the 23 churches that Ibrahim planted in Somalia, not Kenya, in Somalia. Isn't that amazing? That's the new life. It's not the old life lifted up a little bit and dressed up. It is the new life. Praise God. So we are talking about this. The question then is that, but I don't feel different. I don't feel the new life. In fact, I feel the temptation. I feel all my old issues still coming up. What does it mean that we have newness of life and that we are living in the new Adam, new, the new, the second Adam rather than the first Adam? It means this. Let's have a look at this. 
There are some clues. Verse 12, it says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That's the first thing. Do not let. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not let, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. Oh, that's great. What he's saying is this. It is possible for you, even in the second, if, even though that you are the second Adam, to live according to the dead flesh. Right? You can still live that way. You can still choose to actually do that. And when you do that, you will, run, you will enter into its gravitational orbit, its gravitational pool. So what he's saying is, this, don't let that happen. That means you have a choice. He could not have said that to the first, the first Adam because they have no choice. Adam has no choice. But he says, do not let that rain. Isn't that amazing? Do not let that rain. That means you can. You can move away from it. You can move out of its gravitational pull. I remember finding myself not able to overcome a particular sin and just was completely um, um, repetitive. And I could not, every time I faced that sin, I would fall. I was completely um, a victim of, yeah, and even in my, in my choosing. Yeah? I was completely bitter with somebody, yeah? somebody in ministry, uh, and, and, and he really got my goat. He got my goat. I found myself thinking and hoping for the worst things to happen to him. I wanted not justice. No, there was, it was not just justice that I want. I wanted satisfaction. It was satisfaction. Every day, every time I saw his face, I got to admit, I wanted to slap him. And he was a, ch- a Christian too. And I found myself completely bound up, mastered by this hatred of him. It got worse. It got worse. The more and more I saw his, saw him, heard his voice, even things that were attached to him, even his property. I'd see his shirt lying on the, on the, on the floor and I would get angry with that shirt. One time I got that shirt and nobody was looking at it, I just kicked it out. And I felt no satisfaction. And I realized I'm so small. I'm so miserable. And I couldn't help myself. And I remembered what I had read in Watchman Nee. He talks a lot about this. And I realized that in spite of the fact that the immediate feeling in this body of sin, this body of sin is immediate to me, right? It's immediate to me. It's my immediate reaction is to actually really do harm to that person or to wish harm to that person. I realized that it actually, its power has been broken even though I could feel it immediately. Does that make sense? The immediacy of the body of sin 
does not mean that it is more powerful than you or than God. And so, came to this next point. It says, therefore, do not present your members of your body as instruments of righteousness, but present yourself to God as alive from the dead. I came upon, upon this verse and I realized, I do feel the immediacy of the old Adam, but I can present myself to God. And then I realized that the, 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 the seam between the old Adam and the new Adam is this thing called presenting. That I knew how I felt. And so I presented myself and I realized that presenting took time. It was to say that in faith, I believe that my immediate feelings of revenge and all that were so great. But if I present myself to God, I open myself for the life of the promise of the new Adam to be coming in and filling me. I just need to give it time. I just need to allow myself to wait upon him until it begins to fill me. Does that make sense? And that's what I did. That's what I did. Every day I open myself to God and I present. I just present myself. I wouldn't present myself to thoughts of revenge or thoughts of that. I try to move away from that. I try to present myself to God and dedicate myself or devote myself to Him. And if you are prepared to do that again and again and again and do it in faith towards God, Believing that you can receive the new Adam, the new Adam, the, two, the second Adam, the more of the life of Christ in you, that the life of Christ in you is alive and that it's the power of the old Adam has been broken, you begin to find that more and more you get filled up. You don't believe me? You wait upon him, you present, and as you present him, uh, Romans chapter 12 says, presents a living sacrifice, you give yourself to him. Telling him, I can't help myself. I'm at your disposal, Lord. I can't help my pride. I can't help my fragility. I can't help my consummate violence. I cannot help all that. I cannot help my sensitivity. You know that with the frame that I have, you know how easily I get offended. You know how even little things, even little slights, even little ignorant, ignoring that people do hits me hard. You know how fragile I am. You know how easily I get offended. I present it to you. And I believe that as I present it to you, as a living, present myself to you as a living sacrifice, you are here to consume the sacrifice. At some point, it happened. It just happened. I don't know how. I can't even remember a moment in which that turmoil was stilled. But on the basis of the fact that God has crucified the old person, just waiting on him, I found myself no longer having bitterness against him. In fact, he became close to me. In fact, God was working in us so that we would work together more. I didn't realize that I was experiencing this as a preparation for working with Him closely. 
some of my best friends are the ones that I had the most problems with. But if I lived in the first Adam, I will always only know how to work it in by managing the awkwardness. Just managing it, managing it, managing it. There is a gravitational pull to sin. It has power. If you give it power, it will take power. There's gravitational pull to temptation, to addiction, to these things. But if you present, every day you present yourself to God in faith, you will feel its pull decreasing. And as it decreases, the anxiety, the panic will go. Amen? One of the things that I, I want to share with you is this, that um, I realized before I took my sabbatical that I suffered from something in my soul that makes me, in some areas, very anxious, very anxious, suffer with anxiety. I'm actually more than anxious. I'm anxious about anxiety. I'm anxious about feeling anxious. I, have, have you had that? You know, It's like you know certain things give you anxiety. You want to go far away from those things because you're anxious about what anxiety does to you. So I have that. I had that. And during my sabbatical, I had to face it very, very clearly because there were many things that I was anxious about. And the Lord spoke to me one thing. Take courage. Now in the past, if I was thinking, if I was in the, in the first Adam, how do you tell the first Adam to take courage when there's no courage? Right? How, can, how do you do when the Bible says, don't be afraid when you're afraid? But I realized there was this anxiety about anxiety that I had. I was anxious about living a life in which anxiety would be always there. Always there. And then the Lord spoke to me during my sabbatical. Take courage. Take courage. And I realized that courage isn't the, 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 the absence of fear or the anxiety. Courage is being willing to step up to obey God even though you're afraid. Take courage and the Lord will strengthen your heart. Then I realized something was happening in this presenting. And I present myself to God and not go the way of my anxiety or my fears, manipulating things, avoiding things, getting around things, running away from things, anticipating them from afar and like not going anywhere near that. Not doing all that, but taking courage and presenting myself to God. Not necessarily doing anything, but presenting myself to God that the Lord would actually cause strength to come in. And I began to do that. I wake up, uh, every day of my, my sabbatical, I woke up at about 4.30 to 5, and I would just present myself to God. And every morning, I would present my, myself to God with all the fears, all the anxieties in me. I'd wake up in a really, really anxious mood, all right, a bad mood, and I'd go down, downstairs, 4.45, around that, and then I'll wait on him and I'll present myself to him. You know my fears. I'm stuck. I'm like an animal that cannot, finds no way out. 
And the Lord was speaking to me, have, take courage and he will strengthen your heart. He said, those who seek the Lord are delivered from all their fears. You know, when you seek the Lord, that means you go deeper, deeper, deeper. At a certain point, when you go deep enough, the fears, they just go. If you just take that word and just say, oh, the Lord's going to take away my fears, but you don't go deeper, you don't seek the Lord, you won't experience the depth of it. There's a dimensionality about that. Does that make sense? And so I realized that at 5 o'clock in the morning, I had to pray and I would not get up from my seat until it lifts. Does that make sense? Many Christians are living, not realizing that the second Adam is next to them. The first Adam is immediate. Yes, it is real. It is real. But its, it's power has been broken. And you're sitting in the, in the first Adam, and you're sitting among all the fears and anxieties and all the sin and all that. And what the Lord's saying is, is, there is the second Adam. That's who you are. But you're not used to it. You're not used to it. What's immediate? You're, good. you're living by what's immediate. So presenting gives you a chance to not live by the, uh, the immediate, but to transition. Does that make sense? So you present your bodies to God for, for good. So there's a transitioning that, that actually happens. And when you transition, you give your time to, to, to transitioning, then more and more courage yields strength. I took courage to mean just obey, just obey. So I told, I, I, I found myself telling the Lord, okay, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Whatever you want me to do. I'm scared like hell about it. Oh, sorry. Golly, I was scared. But I presented it to him. And I present, pray in the spirit, right? Because I can't help myself. I can't talk myself out of it. Pray in the spirit until the anxiety lifts usually around 10.30 in the morning. Amen? Suddenly I realized there is this part of me that is the second Adam, that is the real true part of me, not the immediate. We get confused because we think the immediate thing, the immediate reaction is the true us. We think that we have these particular sexual proclivities and we think that's the true us. No, that's not the true you. you the true you is nothing like what you are now. You can't look at yourself and look at your gifts and your particular proclivities or your particular tendencies and think, this is you. This is the real you. No, that's not true. There's an infinite qualitative difference between the second Adam and the, and the first Adam. There's an infinite qualitative difference between the dreams of God and your own dreams. What, what's so radical and frightening about the New Testament is the fact that God says, I put an end to this. The axe is laid to the root. Let it go. Because I have better than that. Those things may give shadows or, 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 or some, some, some kind of intimations of who you're going to be, but who you're going to be is much better than what that can intimate. You know? Amen? After the... During my... Um, during my sabbatical, I felt the Lord speak to me about... taking care of my health. So during my sabbatical, things that I had neglected, I started going to the doctors, going to the dentist, and doing all that kind of stuff. And he spoke to me, do it. Because I want you to not pitter out. I don't want you to pitter out. I want you to be able to have enough space to do whatever I want. 
soon after uh, my sabbatical ended, at the end of June, I had gone for a checkup and realized after coming back that my PSA um, score was very, very high, very, very high. In fact, immediately the, my, my doctor said, you better go and get, get it checked. And I found out that I had prostate cancer. I, my father had prostate cancer before. But his prostate cancer, like most prostate cancers, are slow-growing. So there are some people who, because it's so slow-growing, at the, at the age of 70, they, they get news about their prostate cancer. They actually outlive the, 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 sorry, the prostate cancer outlives them. They actually die of other causes. But as we did the tests for mine, I began to realize that the doctor was saying that my prostate cancer was very aggressive. On a Gleason score of 0 to 10, my mind was 9. And I was faced with this thing about anxiety. The immediate shape of my mind or my soul told me, how are you going to live every day with cancer? Because I've known cancer patients, people have died of cancer, people have survived cancer, in which cancer treatment lasts a long time. Your whole life is just never the same again. And I needed to be able to have God give me the ability to live every day not obsessed, not gripped by the prospect of a completely different life. So on my birthday, July the 10th, I remember confronting this and I realized that God has given me victory over anxiety. It's very hard to explain that because when you've grown up with anxiety, a certain kind of anxiety, not anxiety and everything, I, and a lot of things, finance and all that, I'm not anxious. But there are certain things I'm really anxious about. I realized that in this area, I was completely, you know, I had a pattern of being completely tied up by it emotionally, mentally and all that. And I had to have something. And again, I could not imagine that I could be a person without anxiety. I look at everybody. I look at, you know, have, have you seen how when you see that there's something abnormal about you, you think everybody else is normal except you? I look at other people. Wow, they are not worried. They're not worried. They're not anxious. They're not anxious. But I had this anxiety about anxiety. And every day, the Lord would bring me to Him again in the morning. And I didn't overcome anxiety by attacking my anxiety, but by opening myself, presenting myself, and the Lord speaking to me. Does that make sense? Every day during my devotions, He'll give me a word. He'll give me a word that would address the very fear I had, the very anxious anxiety that I had. And over the, over the, over the, the, the next four months or so, I found that every word that He spoke would fill up my anxiety fill it up. The anxiety would be like, it would come in the morning, I'd wake up in the morning and all the worst things would come to my mind and I would spend time with him and I'll wait upon him, present again. And as I waited upon him, he would give me his peace. He'll give me a word. 
to such an extent that and I and I set my heart towards him. Even before the word came, I allowed the Lord to fill me with his peace, with his touch. Amen? Before the word came, I was already feeling the peace of God. My heart was changing. It was not changing from the old Adam, the, what, the old Adam, the, the first Adam, to a more improved version of it. I found that there was something that was taking place. It's like this. When you are faced with the reality of cancer, you're faced with the reality of tests and numbers and doctors who don't show any kind of sympathy for you, who tell you what the numbers are, straight, raw, cold, and tell you how bad it is, all you have is the word that the Lord speaks. All you have is the word that the Lord speaks. You can have a hundred words, but at the end of the day, the words will have to be matched up against the test, the bi biopsy test, the MRIs, the CT scans, all these things. You have to match it. And there's always the possibility that everything that you heard falls to pieces against the hard, cold, cold reality of what MRI says, or the biopsy says, or the bone scan says, right? Especially with the, with the prognostications. But I found that in the midst of that, so here am I thinking, okay, how, how does a word become more substantial than the actual reality of the mass of cancer and the numbers? How does a word become that? How do I become, how am I going to rely on that? Do I sort of say, I'm going to believe the word of God. I'm believing, I'm believing it against all that. What happens is that you, you believe it and then the, the, the numbers come out completely confounding the word, right? Let's be honest here. Yes? <laughs> and I asked the Lord about it. And the Lord's brought me to this whole thing about the new, the second Adam. That in me is a new person who can hear from God. If I just wait long enough, if I just allow myself to wait long enough, to present him, myself to him long enough, most people are not willing to, but when you're desperate, you are willing to. You have no, no other place to go. Long enough, he will put within me the truth. He'll put within my soul the truth. And in my soul, I'll feel a thing called conviction. Conviction is a very solid thing. It's like hard as rock. Have you had that? You can face anything. But when conviction comes, Galatians talks about conviction coming and faith comes, it's not that you're trying to believe something. No. Faith, apodixis, has to do with something that happens to you. And we set our heart towards Him, devote ourselves to Him. Faith comes. Now, I would hazard a guess that most Christians have not waited for that faith to come yet. It hasn't come together yet. You may have got a word, but the faith hasn't come yet. 
faith comes sometimes before the word. Because if you relate to him face to face, heart to heart, mouth to mouth, face to face, looking to him, not looking for a word, not looking for an, 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 an experience or any kind of atmospheric thing, you just look face to him, face to face to him. God and me just talking. When that happens, when I relate to him, he begins to, to do things in my heart. I hear him speak by my heart feeling different. Does that make sense? He puts his word in by putting a conviction in me. Have you had that? Have you had that? The conviction is so strong. I've got five minutes, okay. Four minutes. The conviction is so strong that it is stronger than anything that data can give me. I found that when I went for the bone scan, when I went for all these tests and all that, and finally I had the surgery, every single word of God held true. Held true. When I had, the, when I had my test, it said I had a Gleason score of 9, which is very concerning. Through our prayers, and through the power of God, when they did the surgery, they said, oops, it's seven, which is very much reduced. And they took out the they took took out the prostate and they examined it physically. Before I had the the the, the surgery, the concerning thing was that this prostate is a, it's a it's kind of a walnut shaped organ uh, uh, um, thing, and it has a has, has a has a, a surrounding skin around it. It's called a capsule. The thing that you're most concerned about is that the prostate cancer doesn't get out of the capsule. If it gets out of the capsule, it can microscopically spread all over the bone and, and, and everything. I did the bone scan. Before the bone scan came, the Lord would say, there will be nothing. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sure wall against all that. I went for the bone scan, nothing. But they saw, they had seen in the MRI that there was a protrusion. They called that an extracapsular uh, extension. You know? And that was a real concern. By the way, uh, Kaylin is really into urology. Uh, my own daughter is like, she knew all I was going through so she could tell me in sharp, sharp reality all the reality checks that I needed. And they saw that there was an ex extracapsular extension. Right? During the, the, the surgery, the surgeon called Cindy and says, no extracapsular extension. She said, what about that? Said, There's none. God did a miracle. Praise God. The end of the of the of the surgery, they checked all the all the um, lymph nodes and and everything it was completely clear. Yes, uh, a few days ago it was my sixth week after the surgery, six week after surgery. So you have to have a PSA test to see whether it's gone down to zero or not. Yeah, and I just got my test results. It says it's pretty much zero. Praise God. Praise God. So I am not a person who's like trying to 
believe the word of God, I find that the new Adam has the ability to have be open to receive conviction. And when the conviction comes, you are more firm about it than anything else. And that is why during the whole four months, I didn't miss a meeting. I was not able, I was not tied up by it. The Lord gave me freedom, a broad place to be able to minister and to and to carry on with all my meetings, even to preach and all that. Because there is something that changed in me. There's something that changed me from being anxious about being anxious to be a to be a person who could find that conviction was real. It's up there. Amen? Let us pray. I didn't get a chance to talk about being devoted, but we'll try that two weeks from now. But today I want to invite you to, to receive unto yourself your new self, the new Adam, the second Adam. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. We realize that we are no longer just part of the self-help movement. But God has done something even more. He's given us a new newness of life. And in response, I want to invite you to present yourself, the first Adam, give it back to God. There are living waters, different, the water's different. The water that flows out from us is different. Not the old water that has to constantly be cured, be cured and cured and cured. But a new, a new one. In this few moments, I just invite you to just present yourself to God. Say, God, I will wait upon you because you are there. You will not disappoint me. You know my fears, my sin, my past. Lord, we turn our faces to you right now. Your word says that when we hear your word, we don't do it like one who forgets what we look like. Lord, we want to go deeper with you. Ask right now that you will show us the glory that you have paid for that is in us even now in Jesus' name. Let us see you as our mirror. Let us see the risen Christ 
that is before us and the mirror that shows who we are in our new self. We thank you right now. We give up our old images of ourselves right now. Ask they would be washed away in our brains, washed away in our muscle memory right now. We give up our old judgments of ourselves right now other people's judgments right now. We give them, we give them, we let you wash them away. We look at you. Let us see who we are in glory. Thank you, Lord. Have your own way. We live to you and not to our things, to ourselves, but to you. In Jesus' name, amen.